delighted to be here with you. Um, it is the joy of my life to teach the Word of God. It's a privilege that He's given me, and um, I am blessed to do it. Um, but sometimes He's a little funny when you're preparing to study and preparing to teach the Word of God. Um, God likes to get involved. Uh, go figure. And so. As I was preparing and praying and seeking the Lord regarding what I should bring to you this Sunday, I thought, I'm going to go ask one of the wisest men that I know, Pastor Jim Willard. And I went over to Jim and I said, hey, Jim, what do you think the church needs to hear this weekend? And he was like, John Michael Coleman IV, they need to hear whatever it is God's teaching you to tell them. And I was like, all right, well, thanks a lot. That didn't help at all. Um, no, but it actually did help a lot. I'm, I'm only joking because I started to reflect, well, what's God been teaching me? What's God been showing me? And I had recently been doing a study on prayer and, and seeking the Lord in prayer and, and talking with God, having a conversation with God. So I thought, that's it. I'll teach on prayer. I even got as far as to writing a whole sermon on prayer. And God said, no. Um, I was in the middle of writing my sermon, uh, in the middle of study, and I experienced one of the greatest spiritual attacks I've had in a long time. Uh, the enemy was just oppressing me, much like Pastor Ron Williams, our beloved Ron Williams, ex experienced a few weeks ago. Just the enemy was coming against me in my study. And I felt uh, two things that really stood out to me in this attack um, that were really, really heavy on my heart. Um, was that the enemy's tactic, the first is this, the enemy's tactic was to make me think God's presence had left me. And then the second thing, uh, though that shook me with great fear, the second thing startled me a little bit more, and it was how little I noticed or depended on God's presence before feeling like it had left me. I had, I, I, experiencing God's presence leaving me or what it felt like, because his presence didn't leave me, I know that, but what it felt like um, uh, was so concerning to me how little I had regarded his presence before that moment. And so I thought in the middle of my struggle, in the middle of this battle, I thought, that's it. I need to study God's presence and what it means to be in his presence and bring that to the church. Because um, if the enemy wants to come against us for his presence, that means we need to look into it and study and, and draw near to the Lord. So I wanted to start by reading you um, one uh, passage, one verse out of the scripture, and then we'll kind of do this big study uh, throughout the book today. But Ephesians 3, verse 12 says this In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you are in this room now. You have given us your presence. You desire to be uh, in fellowship with us even more than we desire to be in fellowship with you, Lord. You sent your son for us, and you've given us your spirit. So we acknowledge you in your presence, Lord. We want to honor you and revere you. We want to know you more. Um, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so on this journey to study the presence of God, I kind of focused in on three stories in Scripture that I think give us a, a helpful look at what it means to experience God's presence and why we need to seek out His presence. The main point that I want to bring to you today, I'm going to tell you it first so that if you're 
If you need to split, then you at least got the main point today. The presence of God, this is the main point, the presence of God is the true reward of life in Jesus. The presence of God is the true reward of life in Jesus. And that's what we're seeking after is his presence. So first, I'd like to take a look at the story of Exodus. um, And I'd like to make a comparison between um, Moses' heart towards the presence of God and Israel's heart towards the presence of God. So uh, what we know for context is that Israel had been enslaved to Egypt for 400 plus years. They were poor, they were mistreated, they were hopeless, they were totally captive. On the other hand, Moses, though he was an Israelite, uh, had been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and was regarded as the prince of Egypt. Maybe you've seen the Disney movie. Uh, Disney? DreamWorks? DreamWorks movie. I knew, look, I looked at my brother Connor and I knew he'd know. DreamWorks movie, prince of Egypt, right? Moses was rich regarded royalty. As opposed to Israel, hopeless, they were slaves. Moses is rich, regarded royalty. After, and after murdering a man for, out of vengeance, Moses becomes a fugitive. He flees into the wilderness, it says, into a foreign land. He marries a shepherd's daughter, and he becomes a shepherd himself. He's, he's a fugitive, he's, run, he's on the run, um, and he goes to this foreign land and becomes a shepherd. It says this in in Exodus 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses had an experience with the presence of God. He knew firsthand what it was like to be in the presence of Almighty God. As the story progresses, God uses Moses as his vessel to deliver his people out of the oppressive hands of Egypt. And the purpose of this deliverance, the reason that God's going to deliver his people out of Egypt, becomes really clear to us in what he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, which we can find in Exodus 7, verse 16. God says, uh, go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him at the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that has changed into a snake. Then say to him, so this is what God's telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. I think we often immediately think that God's going to bring them into the promised land like that. Yeah, it's the promised land. It's amazing. But God's intention on setting his people free initially is that they may worship him where? In the wilderness. Not in the promised land yet, but that they may worship me in the wilderness. We know that God leads them out of Egypt by Moses, uh, his servant, and he 
He's constantly delivering Israel out of trials, out of struggles. Uh, first and foremost, we remember the great story of the Red Sea where they're being chased by their enemies and they run through an open sea and then God washes away their enemies with the waters of the sea. Um, and as they go through the wilderness, they're faced with trials, tons of trials. It's the desert. But God continually provides for them every need and most importantly, his presence was always with them. He went with them in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of, of fire, and he constantly was with them wherever they went. We see that Israel, though, the people of Israel lack a desire for God's presence because they constantly complain, even wishing to be brought back into captivity in Egypt. Uh, chapter 16 of Exodus, verse 3, they say... Uh, this, the Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And again, in chapter 17, verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? The people of Israel lacked a desire for the presence of God, so much so that they wished they could be slaves again in Egypt, not realizing that God was with them everywhere they went and provided everything they needed. When they needed food, he brought it up from the ground. When they needed water, he brought it out of a rock in the desert. God was with them and he was providing and they did not desire his presence Though Moses, he continually tried to seek the Lord and lead Israel to God's presence, they did not want anything to do with it. They continued to grumble, forsake his deliverance, and even worship idols. Okay, so we'll fast forward. We know that they've been in the desert for 40 years, and they're just about to enter into the promised land. And then in Exodus 33, we have this kind of peak moment in the story of the Exodus where God goes to, to Moses and he says, hey, uh, I'm going to tell you about entering into the promised land, and I'm about to tell you about my anger towards Israel. He says this in Exodus 33, verse 3, uh, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. See, Israel had lacked a desire for the presence of God, so he says, fine. I'm not going to go with you because if I go, I'm likely to destroy you for your wickedness and your uh, stiff neckness uh, towards me, your God. Then Moses said to him, and I think this is the point we need to take out of this regarding the presence of God. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The point from this story that Moses shows here is that it's better to be with God in the desert than without him in the promised land. The first point I want you to hear today is it's better to be with God in the desert than without him in the promised land. Moses knew what it was like to be in the presence of God, and he knew that it was worth suffering in the wilderness for 400 years like Israel had been in Egypt if it were just being in the presence of God because he provides everything that they need. And it says later that, that God, because of Moses' plea, went with them into the promised land. 
So I want to take a look at another story. I want to take a look and compare really two stories here. We're going to go all the way to the other end of the book in Revelation. Um, I'm going to compare the church of Laodicea to King David. And hold on to your hats, because I know that sounds like, how is that going to happen? But you'll see. Let's look at Revelation 3, 14 through 22, um, where Jesus says he's going to spit this church out of his mouth. It says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You say, I am rich, but you do not realize that you are, what does it say? Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, it might seem strange, but we're going to put a pin in that and go to King David. The story of David is this. David was the giant slaying, boy wonder, unlikely mighty king of Israel. But most importantly, David was a man after God's own heart. God, David would have said that every good thing and every victory in his life was attributed to God. Glory, All glory to God. David was constantly giving glory to God for every victory and every good thing. So why do I bring up David in comparison to this church in Revelation? Well, I think that there's a clear, uh, there's a clear uh, picture here that we can see by looking into the text. It says, well, first of all, I'd like to point out David was king. So all of those things that Laodicea said, we're rich, we're lacking nothing. David was rich. He was of great uh, wealth. He needed nothing. And yet David would say, uh, we're going to go through a bunch of psalms, so it's like sword drills, but it'll be up on the screen if you need it. Psalm 86.1, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This is the king of Israel. I am poor and needy. Hear me and answer me. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 8 and 9, my heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. And again, in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3, this is familiar to you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? David desired the presence of God like a deer pants for water. We know this. David was called a man after God's own heart, except for in the account with Bathsheba. And when confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba by Nathan the prophet, this is David's fear written in Psalm 51 that this, is, this would be his punishment. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In the midst of trial, in the midst of being rebuked for his sin, David's fear is that God's presence would be removed from him. 
David's fear is that his Holy Spirit would be taken from him. You see, David knew what the church of Laodicea did not know, and it's the second point I want to bring to you today. It's this, point number two. It's better to be a broken, poor sinner in the presence of God than a rich, righteous king apart from God. It's better to be a broken, poor sinner in the presence of God than a rich, righteous king apart from him. In Proverbs 27, verse 7, it says that the satisfied soul, or the satisfied heart loathes the honeycomb. And this is not just about when you're really full and you don't want dessert after. Um, this is actually a picture that the Jews would have understood very well because if a Jewish child came to their mother or their father and quoted scripture from memory, a dot of honey would be placed on their tongue by their parent to remind them how sweet it is to know God's word and how precious it is, it is to be in his presence. So these kids would constantly come and, and um, quote the scripture and get this dot of honey and to taste the sweetness of God's word. But it says this, a satisfied soul despises the honeycomb, loathes the honeycomb. That is deep hatred. You don't even, you wouldn't even look at it. Um, that's exactly the picture of Laodicea. They had become satisfied with being rich and needing nothing. They were satisfied with the things of the world, and therefore they were stagnant and did not desire the presence of God or intimacy with God. David, on the other hand, he was rich. He was the king. He was mighty, a mighty warrior. He killed a giant, and he would say, I am poor and needy. Do not remove your presence from me. Lord, I want your presence as much as a deer in the heat wants water. This is a man who seeks the presence of the Lord. And I think a good summation of David's heart for the presence of God is in Psalm 84, 10 and 11. He says this, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Okay, finally, I want to look at one more story in the scripture, and it's in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, we see a story about 10 lepers and Jesus encountering them. It says this, Luke 17, 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So, the only distinguishing factor that we know about this one leper, uh, as opposed to the others, is that he was a Samaritan, which would have meant that he was regarded as a half-breed. That's what they would have called him. He was only a half-Jew. 
Samaritans were not allowed into the temple to worship. They were not allowed to give the proper sacrifices needed to, to uh, uphold the law. They were disregarded in society. And then on top of that, he was a leper. So this man would have experienced social scorning and shaming his whole life um, by religious people and unreligious people. And he meets Jesus. He encounters Jesus with his 10 friends. And he says, heal us, Jesus, master, heal us, right? Have pity on us. And then Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. On the way there, it says, they're healed. So they're going to get healed. And on the way, they get healed. And only one guy, the foreigner, the one who didn't even know about religious life at all, looks down and goes, um, guys, we're clean, we're healed. I don't have spots anymore and a long tail. Okay, it's a leopard joke. I know, it's lepers, not leopards. All right, all right, all right. Sorry. Um, the first service didn't laugh either. So, um, But hey, he's like, hey, we're clean. We got to go back because that guy, Jesus, cleaned us. He healed us. We need to go worship him. And he goes back. Who knows what the other guys did? Maybe they went to the temple. Maybe they went on living their lives. They said, good for me. I'm good to go. Ready. Thanks, Jesus. Right back at you. What this one man, though, had, uh, had different than the other nine is that he realized that he had already met the priest. He realized that the man who healed him was worthy of praise. And he went back and worshiped him. He was clean, and he went back to worship the last point that I want to bring out of this story, it's a, I know it's a quick one, but the last point I want to bring to you is a question, really, and it's this. If you get everything that you ever wanted from God, will you go on living your religious life, or will you fall at his feet and worship him? This man had just gotten the one thing he wanted his whole life. I mean, leprosy was horrible. Your fingers would fall off, your nose would break off, you had sores and spots, and it was you were sick all the time, and worst of all, everybody disregarded you. You were a social outcast. If you went into the public square, you had to cry out, unclean, 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 so that people would stay away from you, look on you with disgust. You could not enter the temple. You could not enter the public square. And he got everything he ever wanted. He was healed. And he went back to the feet of Jesus and worshiped him. Will we do the same thing as this leper, right? If we get everything that we ever wanted, will we worship him? Maybe we're thinking like, okay, what if I do get everything I ever want? Will I fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him? That's what I, that's what I want to bring to you today. The, I want to go through these three points one more time and ask a couple of questions. Point one, it is better to be in the desert with God than the promised land without him. Here's my question for you. Do you want to go to heaven if Jesus isn't there? I'm going to ask it one more time. Do you want to go to heaven if Jesus isn't there? Here's what we know about heaven. It's made of gold and silver and precious stones. Everything is ornate and beautiful. The gates are made of giant pearls that you can walk through. I mean, this place is going to be amazing. There's feasting. There's rejoicing. But what we know about the construction of heaven, as Revelation tells us, is that though it were made of gold, though it were made of precious stones, it were clear as glass. 
What we also know about heaven is that Jesus is the light of heaven. So I want to remind you that if you go to heaven and Jesus isn't there, everything's going to be see-through and dark. Everything in heaven knows not to get in the way of you looking at Jesus and being in his presence. It's clear like glass. Point number two, it is better to be a poor, broken sinner in his presence than a rich, righteous king without him. It is better to be a poor, broken sinner in his presence than a rich, righteous king without him. Will you approach Jesus confident that he can forgive you of your sins? Or will you go on living your own way like a rich king saying, I am rich, I lack nothing. My bills are paid, I'm good to go. I've got everything I need, I'm good to go. What do I need Jesus for? Point number three, if you got everything that you ever wanted from God, would you keep on living a religious life or doing what you pleased or would you run to his feet and worship? You see, this, this past week, as I studied, wasn't the first time I had had a spiritual attack from the enemy. Uh, God's presence became really real to me when I was a young boy. God's presence was so real to me uh, in this experience I had, because as a young boy, I was stricken with fear. I was afraid of everything. Well, recently, one of my young adults asked me, hey, JM, hey, John Michael Coleman IV, are you afraid of anything? And I, and I looked at her and I said, no, I'm not. And I, I, was, I was honest. I'm really not. I'm so not afraid of things that sometimes it's bad for me. Um, you know, I'll do something I shouldn't do, jump off a roof or something, right? But I'm, I honestly told her, no, I'm not afraid. But as a little kid, that wasn't true of me. Up until the point I was like 13 years old, I wanted to sleep in the room with my mom or with some, on the floor. I was just terrified. And it was when I was 13 years old that God taught me that he was my father. I grew up without a father, and I always wanted a father, and someone told me for the first time, God was my father. And it was that day that I knew that my father was with me, and I didn't need to fear anything. He gave me the privilege of becoming the man of my family. I was the man of my household, and I knew that a man with God at his side didn't need to fear anything. And from that day on, I wasn't afraid. Glory to God. He has freed me from my fear, and he wants to do the same for you. If you think that you've got it all made, if you think that you're, you're rich, seek Jesus. The more that you drink of him, the more you want of him. It's like your, your thirst is quenched, but you also need more. It's this inexplainable mystery of how deep the well of his goodness is. If you think that you're aiming for the promised land, remember, you don't want to go there if he's not there because his presence is the reward of the promised land. If you're in the desert, if, you're, if you need healing, if you're sick, if you're tired, go to Jesus. His presence is healing. His presence will reward you. He is good, and he loves you. In Revelation 3, after he rebukes the church of Laodicea, he says this in verses 19 and 20, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If you are hearing God's voice, maybe you've never heard it before and you don't know Jesus today, or you have heard it before and you've shut the door on Jesus and you've gone your own way, hear his voice, open the door and invite him in. There's no better place than to be than in his presence. 
And because of Jesus and through our faith in him, as it says in Ephesians 3.12, we can approach God's presence with freedom and with confidence. Lord God, we love you. And we thank you that you have made your presence so available to us. We know that even now as we pray, you are in this very place. We know that from the beginning of time, you have sought to be with us. In the garden, you walked with Adam and Eve. And when they sinned against you, you said, where are you? We know, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your only son to die for us, that he walked on this earth and many people experienced his presence, your goodness in flesh, and saw him take the penalty that we deserve, that if we believe in him, we may raise from life like, raise from death and have life in him like he did. And Lord, your kindness to us is shown to us in that you've given us your Holy Spirit. Your presence is constantly with us, not just around us, but living in our hearts. May we seek out your presence in the quiet place. May we come to you in prayer. May we study your word and delight in your presence alone. Your presence is our true reward. Jesus, we want to give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.